invite you now to listen to the prayer of illumination. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting love and life to which you have given us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament. It's from the 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, in verses 1 through 13. And you can find that in your pew Bible on page 1047. Now the scripture. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I, am, I gain nothing. Love is patient, and love is kind, Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put away an end to my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as if I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. The word of our Lord. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. If you would like to follow along, that's on page 936 in your pew Bibles. Then Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? 
And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. But he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of this holy word. A few years ago, John and Lisa Robinson won one-third of one of those mega Powerball jackpots, you know, the one that people stand in huge lines waiting for because it's been weeks or months since the last time somebody won one, and they're so enormous. And then on some arguably bad advice, the Robinsons went on TV to talk about the fact that they were winners. And at the time, in that first interview, they said they didn't want this to change them. They were going to keep working at their jobs. They were going to pay off their daughter's student loans. But, you know, other than that, they really thought they would keep things pretty normal. I have to say, sometimes I think it would be kind of nice to win the lottery. Now, I don't actually play, which makes it a little tough, but <laughs> sometimes it seems like it would be nice. But then I hear stories about what happens to lottery winners like the Robinsons, and I'm not so sure. See, in that same interview, when someone asked them if they were planning to buy a big house, they said, oh, no, we're very, we love our home. We're very happy with where we are. Yet within six months, the Robinsons had moved to a large, heavily gated and protected home outside of town. As a matter of fact, within just days of their announcement, both of them had quit their jobs. And they no longer were willing to do interviews, and so months later, their friends said they had effectively become hermits in order to av avoid all of the attention and demands that had come their way. Within hours of their names being announced as winners, a scam made the rounds on the internet that they were giving away 100 random gifts of $10,000 each. Just click right here and give us a little information, maybe a bank account number or two, and uh, we'll, you, you, know, you might win just like they did. Yeah, I don't think so. Lottery winners have spoken about this experience over the years. The scammers, the hordes of people coming to take advantage, the legitimate philanthropic institutions of which, you know, some of them are wonderful, but all of them holding a hand out at once is a little overwhelming. The cousin who has a very real need and the, don't you remember 
I'm your second cousin on your father's mother's best friend's side. I need you to pay my bills this month. Becoming targets for thieves and burglars. And in the Robinsons' case, one of the reasons their friends said they quit their jobs so quickly were co-workers who were jealous and petty and small. People who demanded that they make different choices about what they did and were angry when they chose to make their own decisions. Although I suppose maybe not quite angry enough to throw them off a cliff, as Jesus was faced with. I mean, he managed in just a few short sentences to enrage the members of his own community that much. In the first part of our reading today, the people seem to have this attitude of hometown boy makes good, and so are we. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that Joseph's son? Wow, look at him. Have you heard the things he's doing? And Jesus anticipates them. Surely you're about to say, do here in your hometown what we've heard you did for those other people at Capernaum. But then he tries to forestall them by reminding them that even in their own hometowns, the prophets of old had not served their local communities, but the outsiders the foreigners, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman of Syria. And the people are very angry at this response, partly because they are full of expectations. I mean, after all, think about it. If Jesus would just do there what he did in those other communities, it might even be better than winning the lottery. Jesus is already anticipating the crowd. You know, the ones who are ready to say, you know, don't you remember me from when we were little? Don't you want to help me out with my problem? I'm your second cousin. Couldn't you just fix my life a little bit this month? Or maybe the crowd thought that they would experience some kind of financial boom with this healer in their midst. Not only would they all get healed, but maybe people would come into the community and, you know, they could earn some money off of these crowds coming for healing and to hear this speaker. Or maybe, I mean, you know, if this guy's really as powerful as some are saying that he is, he's going to fix those Romans. You know, a little fire, a little brimstone, might makes right after all. And these hometown folks of Jesus might have figured that they were already in the right. I mean, after all, he came from us, right? He's part of our community. We should benefit there should be a little bit of this largesse coming our way. I mean, after all, hometown boy makes good used to be nobody but that carpenter Joseph's son. The people in the synagogue weren't alone. Even today, there are a lot of loud voices out there, politicians and pundits and prosperity gospel preachers who are teaching that through Jesus, God will give us power and protection and prestige. If we just slap the name of Christian on something, if we just ensure that everybody says Merry Christmas or has a prayer in school, our lives will be perfect, even better than winning the lottery. All the good stuff that we think we're entitled to because we're good people. If you just pray enough, if you just 
give a little to, you know, on my, uh, my online giving account, those prosperity gospel preachers tell us, then you'll get it back tenfold, you know, if you say the right prayers and do the right thing. Don't forget to leave your bank account number as you go. And we like the sound of it. It sounds really good to hear what power and control and privilege and esteem we will have. And it sounded good to those people in the synagogue, too. Of course, these are the very things, power, prestige, control, that Satan promised Jesus when he tempted him in the desert. I will give you power and authority over all the kingdoms of the world, Satan said. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anybody I want to. And then what we're left to assume is, you know, and then Jesus can just pass it all on to the rest of us, right? We can all get a little bit of that power and prestige. The people in the synagogue, and sometimes we too, want Jesus to just wave his magic fingers and take care of all of our hurts. And we too sometimes get angry when he doesn't. And even more confused because it isn't even just that he doesn't, but that he actively says, as he said to these folks in the synagogue, I won't. That's not what I'm here for. It's a hard thing to hear. But Jesus' presence and message for us and for those first hearers of him wasn't about how to use power to be in control. Following Jesus isn't about how to be happy and joy, joy all the time and get all the stuff that we want. Instead, if you back up in Luke 4 to the verses immediately prior to this week's reading, his sermon said, The Spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you haven't heard Peter's sermon from last week on that part of the passage, I encourage you to go back and listen to it online, you know, after worship today, maybe not right this minute. Um, But this gospel... This good news that Jesus preaches even to his hometown community isn't about getting more. It isn't about protecting power and privilege, but rather it is about how God, through Jesus, surrendered power in order for God's vision of justice to be fulfilled. The gospel Jesus brings is all about how love is more powerful than the world's power or even his own power to heal or to control. And it is definitely more powerful than the world's ideas of what brings safety and protection and prestige. I have to say, though, even like sometimes I wish for that lottery, I also wonder why won't God just fix it? Why won't Jesus just take care of the bad stuff in my world and others? Why can't the world be perfect? And the answer lies, at least in part, 
that it is our responsibility and call as human beings and as Christians to be citizens of God's kingdom, not just passive recipients of it. It is our job to learn and practice what it means to love each other as God loves. Our Corinthians passage tells us a little bit about what that love looks like. Now, as someone who has preached at an occasional wedding, um, I'd really be willing to bet that for most of us, the time that we hear that Corinthians passage fairly regularly is at a wedding. And that's all well and good. A wedding is a great place to talk about what love is and what love isn't. But Paul, of course, was not writing that passage for a wedding. It isn't a description of romantic love. It isn't a song about how you should feel when you fall in love. It's not a song about, about hearts thumping and fuzzy, fuzzy good feelings in our hearts. And it isn't a checklist for how to know whether you're really in love enough to get married or not. This is a passage that Paul writes to explain what Christian people do as a demonstration of God's love in the world. And as it turns out, it isn't an easy task when we are told that a life following Jesus, a life living out that love, means that we have to be patient and kind. That we don't get to insist on our own way, that we are to care more about the truth than about what makes us feel good or right. That we are not called to live in fear and despair, but rather in hope and perseverance. And it sounds good, but it's not an easy thing to do. And it is a choice that we constantly have to make. You can't make someone love somebody else. And you can't even invite them to see what real love looks like if you're not making every effort to practice it yourself. In a book called The Abundant Community, John McKnight talks about the difference between being a citizen and being a consumer. And he says a citizen is one who chooses to create the life, the neighborhood, the world from their own gifts and the gifts of others. But a consumer is one who has surrendered to others the power to provide what is essential for a full and satisfied life. For us, as people of faith, to expect Jesus to just fix it for us is to reject his call to us to be citizens of the kingdom, not realizing that this expectation is always going to make us disappointed consumers of it. If we just sit back and say, Jesus, fix it, give me the lottery winnings, fix my life, fix their lives, heal the world, make it so there is no one who is hungry or oppressed or captive or blind. If we throw that at Jesus' feet and say, you do it, then we abdicate that call and our responsibility to be citizens of God's kingdom, brothers and sisters of Christ called to work and love and give. We are called to be citizens, not consumers. 
And the church has a mission to do, which Jesus reminds us in that sermon. Rather than waiting for God to fix all the things, we are called to follow Jesus in the task of proclaiming release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, letting the oppressed go free, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. We are to work together to understand and live out what it looks like to love how God loves us. For that is the work of the Christian and the church. Not just the ministers, sorry, we can't do it all for you, and not just the elders and the deacons, but all who call Jesus Lord. This can be a risky and dangerous choice. We tell our young people sometimes that being faithful followers of Jesus might cost them some friends. But how many of us take that admonition seriously ourselves? Are we willing to risk relationships, jobs, profit, or even personal safety or freedom to be the followers of Christ? I've been watching online this week. As a pastor friend of mine in Newark, Ohio, has navigated opening their church up as a temporary shelter during the polar vortex. Central Ohio was experiencing actual temperatures well into the negative double digits, and of course it was much worse in other parts of the country. And there were a lot of people who said, oh, you can't do that. Think of the risk to the church. Think of the risk to your people. It could be dangerous. It's not safe. It means that you have to be out in that weather. There are so many reasons why this isn't a good idea. And he wrote at the end of this week about the challenges that they faced in doing so. The thankfully minor damage to the church, the fear involved with inviting people who are not former but current drug addicts or with serious mental health issues into their building. And some of those experiences, he says, were challenging at best. And he also talks about some really amazing experiences as well. Their congregation, however, along with a couple of others in the area and some community service organizations, decided, however, that the rule of love required them to do what they could do to save people's lives, even if there was danger to property or people by so doing is not an easy call, always, to do these things, to work towards God's kingdom. It would be more fun to listen to those preachers of the prosperity gospel, to those who tell us that following Jesus will bring us comfort and power and prestige, to listen to Jesus' expectations for us is to take a risk, as he did, of getting thrown off a cliff because we choose to live as Christ calls us to live, not as the world calls. And remember that while Jesus manages to turn and walk away from this encounter, eventually his message of radical love that turns the ways of the world on their head is what took him to the cross to die. To love the way that God loves us can be a dangerous thing. 
It isn't in warm, fuzzy feelings or cliches and aphorisms that we find what love truly is. It isn't in the use of power or the conquering of others or insisting on our own way. It is instead something that we see in the mirror dimly as we remember that we are children of God, loved by God, created in God's image for God's purposes. And we are reminded to see it in the faces of those around us, to see it in the church and in one another, not looking for perfection, but actively seeking to live and work and be together as a faithful community. For most of all, we see it in the life and actions of Jesus Christ, who taught us that the one thing that lasts forever is the love that risks everything for others, the love that is given away. Amen. <laughs>